Thank you, worship team. Thank you so much for such spirited and blessed song uplifting our spirits and preparing us for our time of study and looking into the word of, of God. We thank you for that. Before I forget, I want to make this brief, quick announcement that I forgot earlier. Uh, immediately after we finish today, I'd like to meet for about 10 minutes with all of our elders. I won't keep you long. Elders, deacons, and everybody, and worship leader, and everybody that works the tech and AV. We want, I want to meet with you in the conference room for about 10 minutes after we finish. So hold out. Don't run out on me. Give me about 10 minutes of your time today. Jeff, that includes you too. I know you already know that. Amen. You're one of those people. All of our leaders and our tech people want to meet with you real quick. Listen, we're starting today. As I said earlier, we completed uh, on last week our walk through the book of Ruth. It was exciting for me. that I've done it before, but it was exciting for me to do that. Uh, on the heels of walking through the story of Esther, all of that was just encouraging, invigorating, and exciting. So we now launch into a series where we begin to uh, unpack and highlight uh, the, the vision of Bethel Bible Church at large. Not just this campus, but the vision of Bethel. Uh, and that vision, as many of you know, consists of three parts. Uh, building communities, building, I'm sorry, growing communities, building leaders, and living generously growing communities, building leaders, and living generously. That is the vision of Bethel Bible Church, the church that all of you belong to. That is our vision. That is who we hope to be. And so over the course of the next three weeks, we will unpack each part of that vision uh, and, and as it relates to what we're trying to do and who we hope to be. There will be a passage affixed to each one of those parts of the vision that we'll use to discuss that particular section of our vision. And today our focus will be on growing communities, growing communities. We will talk about that part of our vision today and what that actually means, what that looks like for us that are part of Bethel Bible Church, in particular the Hope Campus, but Bethel at large. What does growing communities look like? What is the emphasis of that? How do we get scriptural grounding and, and basis and foundation for that? And what does the Bible have to say about that particular part of our vision? Growing communities. I'm going to kind of break it down initially into two parts. We're going to talk about growing and then we'll talk about communities. Uh, generally speaking, growth is important in all aspects of life. Growth Growth is important. I think you'll agree with me that in every area of life, not, not just human life, but in every area of life, growth is important. When proper care is taken and health is optimal, growth is expected even in plant life. Uh, as illustrated ever so simply by this preschool poem entitled Growing. Here's what it says. It says, inside the seed all bundled up. Thought it would be on the screen, but I'm going to just read it to you. <laughs> Inside the seed, all bundled up tight. A tiny plant grows, needing water and light. I'll plant it in soil, 
Let it catch the sun's glow. Then water it gently and watch the plant grow. I'm going to read it again to you since you couldn't see it. I'm going to read it again. It says this, inside the seed, all bundled up tight, a tiny plant grows needing water and light. I'll plant it in soil, let it catch the sun's glow, then water it gently and watch the plant grow. Growth. Just as growth in general is important to all living things, spiritual growth is essential for the believer. For you and I, you and I, spiritual growth is vitally important. Like the growth of the seed, spiritual growth is a process. It's not a destination. It is a journey. It's a process, spiritual growth. The process can only be fully realized. You got you to gotta catch this. It can, uh, this process can only be fully realized within the construct of biblical community. You need to hear that. I'm going to say that one more time because it's very important for us. Uh, this process can only be fully realized within the construct of biblical, for us, within the construct of biblical community. That's the only way we can continue on this journey. Biblical community is a big deal. It's important for our happiness and growth. Biblical community is, and it's not an optional part of the Christian life. It's not something you can take or leave. I know sometimes we won't do that, but let me just say that again. It's not optional. Biblical community is not optional. It is mandatory if we want to experience growth. I'm not talking about physical growth. I'm talking about spiritual growth. The Bible gives us verses like these that I'll share with you concerning this. Like Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, it says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Here's another one from Psalm 133 and 1. In fact, we, we, this was the church that I pastored before coming back home to Tyler was called Unity Baptist Church, and this was our theme verse, Psalm 133 and 1. Here's what it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That's talking about biblical community, isn't it? And then 1 John 1, 7 says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, here's another one of those one another's, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Romans 12, 5 says this. You should have been able to see all of these, but that's okay. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Let me read Romans 12, 5 again. It says this. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of another. It's talking about biblical community. Then in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46, here's what Dr. Luke writes. He says, and all who believed 
You remember this part of Acts. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is a picture of biblical community. When we are in close relationship with other believers, we have people who pray for us, people who support us, people who encourage us, people who exhort us, people who serve alongside of us. It blesses us to be that way. Biblical community is simply sharing a common life in Christ together. The biblical ideal of community challenges us to commit ourselves to, to life together as the people of God. It is a challenge for us. God challenges us to do that, commit ourselves to dwelling together and living together in community as the people of God. It also helps us as we navigate the Christian maturation process. It is difficult to mature as a Christian, as a believer on an island. It's difficult to mature as a lone ranger. And so biblical community helps us with this maturation process. It's a process that is revealed in the one another language of the New Testament. Uh, this phrase that, uh, that you, may, you may be familiar with and you may be familiar with this fact is listed, is spoken, is written somewhere between 60 and 100 times in the New Testament, depending on the translation that you use. You'll see these one another statements all throughout the New Testament. Statements like love one another, forgive one another, regard each other more highly than yourselves, teach and correct one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, bear each other's burdens, be friends with one another, kind, compassionate, and generous in hospitality, serve one another, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is only a few of those statements, but it is enough to remind us that we need community we need the community of faith to grow up in Christ. We need one another. We need one another. I need you and you need me. Amen. We need one another. Just a few facts about true biblical community I want to share with you. Community can rejoice with others and not allow pride or envy to slip in. Community does not have to hide from sin and failure because we know we are fully accepted by Christ. When we're in community, I don't have to hide anything from you because I know you're just as, as, just as I am. We all have our issues, right? Community is meeting the needs of others, even at a great cost to ourselves. That's what community looks like. Community is not without flaws, but it's perfect because it is love in action. Community gives us confidence that we are known and loved by God. Community displays God's glory to a lost and hopeless world. Community requires commitment. Community must be willing not just out of obligation, but out of a willingness to be community. Community requires self-sacrifice. Community requires us to be rescued from ourselves. Community, watch this, is uncomfortable. 
Part of what we do here is we gather with already the understanding that we're going to be uncomfortable. Right? That, that's in any group setting, but certainly it's, it's true for us. We've already committed to the fact that there's going to be some uncomfortable moments. But community is, is like that. Community is uncomfortable because if we had our preference, we would be lone rangers. I know I would be. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I'm, not, I'm a loner. <laughs> you know, I, I, if I had my preference, but that's not, that's not God's ideal. That's not God's plan. God wants us to live in community even if it requires us to be uncomfortable. Not only is community uh, uncomfortable, it's also inconvenient. It's inconvenient. It'll cost you. It'll cause you to do things that you would not ordinarily want to do. It will interrupt your schedule. Somebody say amen. But watch this. Community Although it's all of those things, I've already said to you that it is a command. It's not optional. It's not something we can, we, can, we can take or leave. It's something that God in his word commands us to do. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10? And part the way that story starts off is Jesus says this, you shall, as he's questioned by the lawyer that asked him questions, he, he, he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It is a command that God gives us that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and there is absolutely, positively no way to do that unless we are in community together. That's the only way we can. I can't love you if I never see you. I can't love you if I don't know your heart. You can't love me if you don't know my heart. If you don't know the situations and circumstances and trials that I'm dealing with, you cannot love me like you ought to. And I can't love you unless I know your kids' names. Unless I know your address, unless I know your phone number, unless I know your email address, unless we're able to communicate together, unless we have lunch, dinner together, unless we fellowship together, I can't love you like I ought to love you. It is not optional. It is a command right directly from the word of God. That's not the only place. It's in a whole lot of places. It is connected. It is, it is connected to the one another's. Since this is such an important and integral part of the Christian journey, where we can, uh, where can we, the church, get instruction? Since this is important, where do we get instruction on helping to facilitate this process? Since we, we, I think I've made a pretty good case. I could have kept going, but I think I've made a pretty good case that it's important. Could have kept going, but we got some other stuff to get to, so I better stop and tell you that there is some instruction in Scripture to help us with this process. Since we've already established that it's not optional that we have to do this, then how do we do it effectively? Where do we get instruction? The Apostle Paul helps us answer this question in today's passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul helps us answer this question, how do we do this process and facilitate this process effectively? Let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Here's what it says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended for far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of, jo of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul gives us help and foundation for this process, this process of building community. Paul helps us with that. Uh, this letter, this letter was written to the church at Ephesus by Paul around 60 AD while he was under house arrest, likely in Rome. There's some question about that, but likely he was in Rome. Hence, it is known as one of the prison epistles, along with the Philippians, Colossians, and uh, Philemon. He's in prison. He's locked up uh, in a prison cell. The book of Acts records that Paul had visited Ephesus at least three times. Paul writes this letter because he was deeply concerned that the new believers there in Ephesus, uh, that they would have a correct understanding of all that God had given them in Christ and of the kind of life God wanted them to live in response to what he had given them. Paul writes this because of that. So in chapters 1 through 3, is, uh, it's, it is written for the purposes of doctrine. Chapters 1 through 3 is information. Doctrine is shared in 1 through 3, while chapters 4 through 6 is not doctrine, it's not information, it's written for practical application so that he lays the foundation first and then he says, this is what you do as a result of what I have taught you. Uh, practical application for what he's taught in 1 through 3. I like to divide, if you'd allow me to, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 into five sections. We're going to talk about them uh, rather quickly, but five sections in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. First thing I'd like to look at is verse 1. In verse 1, I want to talk about Paul's challenge. Paul's challenge, we find it in verse 1. It starts this way. Paul starts verse 1 this way. He says, I therefore... 
And I always like to tell you whenever there's a therefore, you need to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And so we know because we've always asked and answered that question that it means that there's something that happened before that Paul is referencing. There's a, when he says, I therefore, before we go any further, any further, we know that he is calling us and asking us, the reader, to look back at what he's already said. This is a reference to what Paul had said in the first three chapters when he says, I therefore, it is saying, look back at what I said in the first three chapters. The therefore means this is what you should do based on what I have said. In the first three chapters of this book, Paul's focus has been on doctrine, as I said earlier, and positional standing in Christ. Some of what he taught in the first three chapters, I'll share with you. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 4, he teaches that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Chapter 1, verse 3, he teaches that God has given us all spiritual blessings through Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 5 and 11 through 12, he teaches that God has determined that we will be like Jesus and and with Jesus one day. Chapter 1, verse 6, he teaches that God has made us accepted in Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 7, he teaches that God proved the blood of Christ that washed us from our sins. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he teaches that God reached out to us when we were dead in our sins and headed to hell. Chapter 2, verse 4, teaches that God loved us. Chapter 2, verse 5, God gave us life. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, God has secured our future. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is that all familiar passage that talks about salvation. By grace have we been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, lest, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know that passage. God, Paul leads us to that. Chapter 2, verse 10 teaches that God has given us life in Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, he teaches that God has brought Jews and Gentiles together in Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he teaches that God has made a new race of people from those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's created a new race. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, he teaches that God desires to use us to bless us and teach about the divine mystery of his everlasting grace and love. Then Paul shifts from doctrine to duty, from positional truth to practical truth, from what we believe to how we are to behave. Paul moves from exposition to exhortation. He moves from principle to practice. Having told us about who we are and what we are supposed to believe, Paul now tells us how we are supposed to act. We need to be taught how to act. Paul says this is what you ought to do. So in chapter uh, 4, verse 1 After the therefore in part B of verse 1, he says this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What does that mean? It means this. uh, So to urge, it means that this is very important. It is a pressing request. He makes an appeal to the people that are reading the letter. He urges them. It is an urgent appeal. It is a pressing request. He is begging them to live a life. Anytime you see walk in Scripture, likely it means living. He says, walk in a manner or live a life that is representative of the call to Christianity. 
Now, this is not talking about the preacher's call. It's not talking about the deacon's call, the elder's call, none of that. It's talking about your general call to a life that represents Christ. And so, so, so that means that you can't wiggle out of it. <laughs> you can't say, well, Paul was talking only about the preacher there, and that don't apply to me. No, that is a general call to all Christians, the one that you got when you gave Jesus your heart. He calls you to something. Right. All of us have been called to something. You may not ever stand where I am, but I may not ever sit where you are. You may not ever stand where I am. I may not ever stand where you are. We don't have necessarily the same call as it relates to where we serve in ministry, but all of us have a call to represent Christ in our daily lives. And Paul says, walk in a way, walk in a way that will bring God glory. That's what he says. He says, I urge you. Since I just told you all of this in one through three, here's your responsibility. Do what I say. <laughs> Take it to heart. So that's what happens. He gives this challenge in verse one. And then we move to verses two through three. And in verses two through, th through three, there's a question. Question arises in two through three. And here's the question. What does walking worthy look like? What does walking worthy look like? So we have to look at it. And so Paul anticipates that question. So because of his anticipation, he gives us an answer. He anticipates it. He gives us an answer. Here's what he says. He says, walking worthy looks like this. It means humility. It means being humble. You know what that means? Being humble means turning the reins over to Christ. Taking, taking your hands off of it. Giving Christ full authority, all the reins and rule over your life belong to him. It means making self secondary to others. That's what it means. Making self secondary to others. It means doing away with pride. Pride has to be done away with. It means this, admitting your faults and the need for forgiveness. Because sometimes some of us think that we never have faults. And it's difficult to, for us to admit our faults. But humility, being humble, means that I can fall on my knees before God Almighty and say, Father, I stretch my hands to thee. No other help I know. If thou withdraw thyself from me, whether shall I go? It means I need you every hour of every minute of every day because without you, I'm nothing. That's what humility looks like. That's what humility is. So Paul says, walk that way, live that way. It also means this. Paul says, that's, you don't stop there because also not just humility, there also has to be gentleness. What is gentleness, you might ask? Gentleness is a strong hand with a soft touch. It's being confident yet concerning. It's being confident yet compassionate. It, 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 it's a tender, compassionate approach toward others' weaknesses and limitations. Uh, it's a, a, a gentle person still speaks truth, sometimes even painful truth, but in doing so guards his tone so the truth can be well received. It was Jonathan Edwards who called gentleness the Christian spirit. Edwards said, all who are truly godly and are real disciples of Christ have a gentle spirit in them. All have that. 
And so then Paul says not only humility and gentleness, he also says patience is important. You know what patience is? Patience implies suffering, endurance, the ability to wait as a determination of the will and not simply out of necessity. In other words, I will myself to wait, not just because I have to, not just because I need to. I will myself to have endurance, not just because, I, just because it's going to benefit me, but I, I will myself to do it, not out of necessity, but because I want to be patient in the eyes of God. And so then I have to will myself to have endurance. I have to will myself to be able to endure difficult times, hard times, struggle times when I've asked for something and God haven't answered yet. Or he's answered and his answer wasn't what I wanted to hear. Because he always answers immediately. You know that, right? Before you get up off your knees, before you open your eyes, he's already answered. It may just not be the answer you want to hear because sometimes he'll say no. (laughs) Amen. He answers. Sometimes he'll say wait. Sometimes he'll say yes. Whatever it is, he's already answered it. But I have to, if I want to walk in a way that's worthy, I have to have patience. And then he says, not only that, but we must be willing to bear with one another in love. Bear with one another in love. What, is, what, what in the world does that mean? It means making allowance for other people's faults. Not riding a high horse. Not looking down on people. Right? But, but, but making allowance for the fact that other people have faults just like you do. And being willing to bear with them through their faults in love. Getting along with people. Now, I'm, on, I'm, I'm getting ready to step on some toes right here. Get, y'all just bear with me now. Getting along with people that are difficult to get along with. <laughs> Loving folks that are unlovable. Hello, somebody. That's what, that's what bearing with one another in love means. It means being willing to endure some of that stuff, right? People that are hard to love, people that are hard to get along with, people that just work your last good nerve. <laughs> but, but if we're going to walk in a way that represents Christ, we've got to figure out, Brother John, how to do that. I need to learn how to, how, to, how, to, how to deal with you. I need to learn how, how, how to bear with you because, listen, I've got faults myself. And you may be feeling the same thing about me. He is so difficult to deal with. And I'm thinking about you, Lord, have mercy, here he comes again. Right? We've got to learn to bear with one another. Then, then he closes with this. He says, we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We've got to do that if we're going to walk in a way that represents Christ. If we're going to walk in a way that's worthy of our Christian calling, we've got to be eager. That means excited about maintaining unity, not just ordinary, regular unity, but the unity of the spirit. We've got to be excited about that. Division can't excite us. Oh, I need to say that again for those watching online. 
We cannot be excited and energized and eager about division, but rather, if we're going to be true to Christianity, we must be excited and eager, not about division, but about unity. We must seek a way to be united together. What is the unity of the spirit? What is he talking about? This above everything else should be the driving force behind us doing what's listed in those things above. Patience and endurance and all of those things. Gentleness and all that. This, the, the, the unity of the spirit should be the driving force behind doing those things. To maintain the unity, of, uh, the unity that Christ instituted through the spirit. But what exactly does this unity look like? Well, again, Paul anticipates that question, and he has an answer in verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6, he gives us the basis of Christian unity. The basis of Christian unity in 4 through 6. I'm going to read it for you. Here's what it says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The basis of Christian unity. This unity is one that exists by divine design and by divine creation. God instituted this unity. It exists because God created it. You didn't have anything to do with it. It existed already before you were ever born. You know what our job is? Our job is not to create it. Our job is to maintain it. He created it way back in the garden, didn't he? He brought two together, and the two that he brought together that were separate became one. That's what 224 says, right? Therefore shall a man leave his father, mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one. He, did, he does it there, and it was supposed to last throughout eternity that way. That all that were two, all that were divided would come together, not necessarily as husband and wife, but just come together as the body of Christ. And our job is not to create it, but to maintain it, that this unity that was created by God, it is the unity uh, of which Paul has already spoken about in chapter 2 of Ephesians. He already laid down, remember, remember I told you what he does in 1 through 3 is he teaches doctrine. And then we get to four through six, and it is practical application of the doctrine that he teaches in one through three. So he's already covered this unity thing in chapter two. So he says now in chapter four, just maintain it. God has already created it. Here's what he says in chapter two, verses 14 through 22. I'm going to read it for you real quick. Here's what it says. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling of God in the spirit. 
This is the unity that Paul says, I've taught you about it. God instituted it. Now you maintain it. The unity of the spirit. This word one, we see this word one. One in this passage, verses four through six, is mentioned seven times, which suggests that we are completely united by the spiritually, uh, by the spiritual significant things that we have in common. We are united by those things that are spiritually significant. We are all part of one body. We have been indwelt by one spirit, have one hope, eternal security, one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. I said one, one hope, one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. Somebody should have said something right there. One faith, one baptism, one God who is overall through all and in all. We have this unity. This oneness. So Paul says, if you're going to walk in a way that's worthy of your calling, maintain this. And then, and, then, and then we move on to the next thing in verses 7 through 11. Uh, t- uh, he talks about gifts for building up the church. Gifts for building up the church in 7 through 11. In verse 7, it says this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So to equip the church for unity and service, God graciously gives every believer a spiritual gift, a spiritual ability to be used in service to God's people for the expansion of his kingdom. That's what he's talking about in verse 7. And then in verse 8, it says this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and captives, and he gave gifts to men. What does it mean? Here, here Paul, after just making the statement that all believers are given grace, is now about to validate his statement by quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. That's what he quotes here. This passage directly refers to Christ's victory over Satan over sin and over death. The three enemies that Christ conquered with his death and resurrection. He conquered, anybody here know he conquered all of that death, sin, the grave, Satan, all that was conquered on the cross? Not just on the cross, but in the grave. And then when he got up from the grave, he defeated all of those things. They were defeated uh, when Christ conquered them with his death and resurrection. And because of his victory, he now gives gifts to those that were formerly held captive by those things that he conquered. He conquers all those things, and then as a celebration, as a, as a recognition of what he's done, he gives gifts. He gives gifts to the church. He gives gifts to the body of Christ. So then, in verses 9, 9 through 10, this is what it says. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is a reference to Christ's crucifixion, burial, and then ascension into heaven, which was all precipitated by his incarnation when he came here to earth, which was a humble expression of his love for all humanity. This is what Paul is referencing, the humility of God, the humbleness of Jesus to take off what he had on and to come to earth to live, to die, to go to the grave for us, and then to ascend into heaven all for us. And then in verse 11, verse 11 says this, and he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These were the gifts 
that he gives to the church as a result of his victory. This is a partial list of the gifts that he provided to the church by way of his victory. The gifts mentioned here include empowerment for leaders to serve in the church. Empowerment for the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to serve in the church. It was Jesus' gift, right? Along with a whole lot of other things. Paul just uses part of the list here to talk about that. So these uh, were the gifts that he gives for the building up of the church. And then lastly, we'll look at the purpose of those gifts in 12 through 16. 12 says this. Here's the purpose, right, in 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You can really just stop there. That's the purpose of the gifts, right? That, that, that's purpose. Let, let me say this. Let me, let me pause briefly. I'm trying to hear it to a close. Let me say, each of you are a gift. You may not be a part of that list, but you're a part of one of the lists. And you, every one of you sitting there, every one of you out there that's a believer are a gift to the body of Christ. And here is the purpose of the gift to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I don't care if you're not a pastor. I don't care if you're not a preacher. You're not a teacher. You're not any of that. You're still here to help us be equipped for the work of ministry. I don't care what, where you serve, what you do. You have a purpose that you, God has given you as a gift so that, watch if if nothing else, you can help us build community. So that we can effectively represent Christ. We've all been saved not to sit. We've been saved to serve. <laughs> Hello, somebody. We've been saved to serve and he has given all of us as a gift. It's what being Christ-like is all about. Saved to serve is what being Christ-like is all about. You remember that Christ says in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he wants us to do. Give our lives as a ransom for many. Right? It may not, it may not cost you your physical life, but he wants us to forfeit our own preferences and everything else for the good of the body because we've been given as a gift. The only way that the body can work in harmony and at its optimal level is that all of the parts have to be functioning together. He talks about it in Romans. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians, this body imagery and how all the parts have to be together. The purpose of all the members, right, is to, so that the body can function properly. It's the same thing here. Then in verses 13 through 14, he talks about the process. This process, 13 through 14, says this. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God in, in mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It is a process that we are in the midst of uh, this maturation process. It can only happen when all of us are working together and utilizing whatever gift God has given us for the building up of the body of Christ, then and and only then can we mature beyond childish things. 
And you know, he says this, he says, uh, this process is never ending as we seek to mature to manhood and the stature of Christ. Rather than being like children who are, who are very easily manipulated due to, to their limitations. It's not any fault of their own. They're just children. Little child, little baby, very selfish. It's all about them. They don't know any better. Right? The only way we can grow beyond that as believers is that we have to fit together and function together and then we will mature. And then verse 15, uh, is, it says this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. 15 says, the truth is the sure route to maturity. Truth is the sure route to maturity. And then 16, as we close, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is what it looks like. This is the purpose of those gifts, right? Not just the list here, but all those gifts. This is the purpose. When each believer finds his place of service and plays out his or her part, the whole body grows and fulfills its mission in ministry. Its mission and its ministry is, is, is realized when that happens. Christ has provided everything we need for growth. And his model requires us to be in biblical community to fully realize the growth. His model requires that we be in biblical community to fully realize this growth that he has already pre-planned, predestinated, and laid out for us. The only way we realize it is in biblical community. And here is the good thing. When we follow this model, we can then and only then live out what Paul writes back up in chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what he writes. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm going to read that again because that's a, that's a beautiful benefit to growing in him and fully being who he called us to be is that the world will know. I'm going to give it my spin, right? I'm not going to read. You have it in your Bible. So the world will know our Jesus. Because of what we look like, how we act, what we do, the world, we will represent him so well that the world will know him, that every, all the powers, all the rulers will know our God because we are living together, growing together, maturing together in biblical unity, growing communities together is God's plan for his church. And to that end, we're getting ready to launch our small groups again. Some of them have never stopped. The Putman's group is still going. But starting next month, we're launching new group and we're, we're relaunching small groups. In fact, on Tuesday night at 7, Jeff Bice is hosting a leader's orientation online. So if there's anybody here that has a desire to lead a small group, I encourage you to join us online. Get with Jeff. He'll send you the link for the Zoom call on Tuesday night because we believe that doing it this way is God's ideal for how we grow together in community, that all of us have to be plugged in somewhere. 
And so I encourage all of you that if you're not a part of one of these groups or if you'd like to lead one, uh, that you get on this call on Tuesday night and that you get plugged in somewhere so that we can represent Jesus in the way that he wants us to do it. So that you can pray for me and I can pray for you and then we can watch God change things. Hello, somebody. So do that. We look forward to that. We look forward to relaunching and restarting our small groups and growing communities together for the glory of God. Would you pray with me, Lord? We thank you for this day, for your word that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. Thank you, Lord God, for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your diagram, your plan, your purpose for your church. Thank you that when you died, you won the victory. And when you won the victory, you left gifts for your church to utilize for your glory and for the building up of the body. We thank you for that. We magnify you and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're here and you don't know him, we want to encourage you to get to know him. You can do it today. You can do it right now. You can do it later when you get home. But let me just say this. Later when you get home is not promised. Ooh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm sorry, but that's the truth. Later today is not promised. So if you're here in the sanctuary, if you're joining us online, don't count on later today. Don't count on when I get up in the morning because there may be no getting up in the morning. <laughs> Amen, somebody. So why don't you get to know him today? If you're in search of somewhere to call home as far as a church, we encourage you and invite you to be a part of our fellowship. Uh, there are various ways to do that. Let us know. Reach out to us and let us know if you'd have a desire to do that and we can get you plugged in. God bless you all. Don't forget that I need to meet with those people that I called a few minutes ago just for a brief time. Okay. All right. We can do that. So just meet with me about 10 minutes after service. Anything else? Our hearts and minds clear? Good. Amen. I don't see any hands going up. Thank you again for being with us. I'm so glad again to see Cynthia back and glad to hear that voice. I need that. I need that amen, Kona. <laughs> amen. God, glad to have you.